Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI, the most trusted voice in healthcare, committed to advancing effective, evidence-based care. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. Tens of thousands of healthcare leaders rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of care across all healthcare settings worldwide. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. This episode is part of a special series we're producing as part of the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find more podcasts and other free resources on the ECRI website in our COVID-19 Resource Center. And members of all ECRI services can access our Healthcare Recovery Center for additional resources. We're recording this podcast from our respective home offices as we practice and encourage all of you to practice good social distancing to help limit the spread of COVID. Today, we're talking about the steps involved in reopening nursing homes to visitors. The need for drastic social distancing measures included banning visitors at most nursing homes throughout the country in an attempt to protect some of the most vulnerable among us. That ban, however, carried with it a real emotional burden for persons served and families unable to visit their loved ones, not to mention facility staff. As some parts of the country continue to relax distancing rules while others are forced to reinstate some rules, we'll talk about the considerations for opening up, allowing visitors, and how to do so safely when the time is right. To get us started, I'll introduce our guest, Vic Rose. He's Director of Aging Services at ECRI, where he served for more than a decade. Before joining ECRI, Vic was Chief Operations Officer at a continuing care retirement community and has extensive experience in the long-term care industry. Paul, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here with you today and to talk about these important issues. Vic, I mentioned in the opening, you know, the emotional burden that this visitor ban has placed on everyone involved. How have we seen that play out? What are some examples uh, of the toll this has taken on, in particular, residents and families? That's a great and very important question, Paul. We can understand some of the hazards and threats that come along with exposing our older adults to the COVID-19 illness and, and the virus that creates it. But I think it's also important to realize that there are tools that come um, along with these control measures, such as banning visitors, because it has a, a real psychosocial component to it. And just as all human beings need that, that human contact, um, you know, in, in this instance with our older adults, when we've limited visitors out from outside of the facility, loved ones, friends, family, um, it can most definitely affect the health and well-being of, of the resident population. And, you know, let's not forget about caregivers and staff. How are they affected by this ban? Oh, as equally affected, Paul. Um, you know, one of the examples that we've seen, just as a, you know, one particular case, um, it can be difficult, you know, especially if, if a resident or loved one becomes very ill with COVID-19 um, or in some cases, you know, if death occurs. We've had the situation, you know, oftentimes we use that social interaction and that, that time to grieve um, when, when we lose loved ones. So when we think about what's happening at now with the ban on visitors, you know, so many times residents have to go through this course of illness alone, families have to go through the course of illness and all of the things that go with it alone. But there's also the staff to consider. 
in many ways, the staff acts as surrogate in a situation like this for families. Um, they have real relationships and real feelings for the people they serve every day in and out, um, you know, which of course is our residents. And so the losses and, and the challenges experienced by residents and families are also experienced by the staff through this process. We've touched on this a bit, I think, Vic, but I want to explore a little bit deeper. I've heard you talk about the nursing home as comprising a three-population framework that we have to consider, particularly during the pandemic. So can you sort of detail for me, who are those three populations and how do they each play a different role during uh, the pandemic response? That's a really important question because I think as we understand both the pandemic and our outbreak response from, from a public health perspective. Um, it helps us to understand, to plan, and to execute on you know, different control measures, um, and also understand how we can affect this very complex system um, that makes up our public health system. The three populations that we really think about when it comes to aging services in, in this pandemic and for our outbreak response are of course the resident population. The second one being the staff population, and the third one being the visitor population. And so when you consider what we've done with the control measure on visitor ban, we've really taken the visitor population out of the equation. So within our provider organizations and the care and delivery systems, care environments that we create, right now we've just really limited that to the resident population and the staff population. Introducing the third population back into the equation eventually will, of course, have effects. And that's really what so much of this discussion centers around. How do we do that? How do we consider those decisions? How do we consider the consequences of those decisions? All the while knowing that there are competing risks and competing effects on health and welfare from a psychosocial need standpoint that we also need to manage and balance. So, in, I mean, is it fair to say that in focusing on initially, that um, you know, just 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 the physical effects, we we sort of a, a very common and rational response to that is to say, I've got this complex system of interactions, and one of the ways I can narrow down my response is by just eliminating a piece of that system from my consideration because it's just it reduces some variables and lets me focus more narrowly on things I can control. I mean, is that a fair way to summarize it? So that's a very fair way to describe the situation, Paul. And actually it represents the actual situation very well. The first thing that was done was we removed the visitor population from the equation. Then we can also consider how the resident population and the staff population behave differently. In essence, because the residents have really not left the facility in great numbers, it's kind of limited some of the exposure potential for the resident population. That really just leaves the staff. And like any care and delivery system, you know, the staff will go home at the end of their tour of duty and they will make decisions, they'll live their life and then come back for their next tour of duty. And I think, you know, when we, when we consider how to bundle different control measures to help mitigate some of the risks that we as staff might bring into the organization as we come in and out um, to care for the residents each day and to deliver services each day. You know, screening practices, monitoring for changing condition in the staff population, and now virus testing all contribute to help managing that particular risk. 
I think that also opens the door to the third consideration. Very much like the staff population, our visitor population do the same thing. You know, as we loosen controls out in, in the greater community, it means, in fact, our exposure risks um, as visitors or staff in that, in that three population equation, uh, you know, can change. Which means we also have an obligation as visitors coming into the facility to really understand what our contributions are and what our rights and responsibilities are as visitors so that we can keep the staff population and the resident population as safe as possible. That's really our job as visitors in these organizations. And I can say some of the most difficult situations that we've dealt with through this is when there's two things happening at once. When there's an increase in the infection rate in the resident population, which at the same time increases the patient care workload exponentially, and at the same time, there's an increase in the infection rate in the staffing population, which decreases the staffing and scheduling that's available to care for the residents at the same time that increase in workload is happening. So that's mm -hmm. really what this is all about. It's mitigating different potential risks and hazards that can lead to that particular situation, um, which in the end can be a, really a catastrophic failure of that care delivery system and have real harm for many people attached to it. So, you know, Vic, beyond the most obvious uh, risk as we start to reintroduce people from the outside, and I'm thinking that that risk, of course, is, is the risk of infection to, to residents and staff, are there other risks that we need to be aware of as we bring visitors back into a community? Um, and I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, am I going to be putting staff in the position of trying to enforce rules around, like social distancing or mask wearing uh, when those staff really are, you know, that's not why they were hired. They were hired to be nurse aides, for instance. Um, and now I'm going to put them in a position maybe isn't what they were hired to do, but it's got to be done. Uh, are there risks like that that we need to be thinking about? Paul, that's an excellent question. And there most definitely are as we reintroduce a visitor population back into this environment and actually have expectations of them to contribute to our overall goals to keep people safe. Um, and that's one of the things that has changed a little bit in this situation. These are very concrete expectations about contributing to outbreak response, infection control and prevention practice, et cetera. You mentioned an excellent risk and absolutely, you know, having staff enforce rules and normative expectations within the organization can lead to various situations, especially when that staff typically does not do that as part of their regular responsibility. That's where it's so important on the provider organization to keep that continuous communication out there so that people really understand the very real danger, dangers and potential, potential harm to everybody, including the visitors coming into the organization, um, should they contract COVID-19, um, but also that you know, truly in, in that unified way, uh, a real culture of safety creates that all stakeholders within that organi organization carry that obligation, that responsibility to contribute to the safety of each other. And, and that's really, that comes back to the very heart of the risk quality and safety program of any healthcare organization, especially here with the aging, side, aging services providers. I think it's also important to realize with this, you know, in any complex system, such as a care delivery system, when you start to change factors and change, in, change different elements of the system, there are consequences. 
And really there's no such thing as a small decision. You know, through this pandemic and our outbreak response, we've seen very real challenges surrounding PPE. As we bring visitors back into the organization, and most organizations rightfully will have rules that require visitors to use PPE, to wear PPE, especially in the early phases of reopening. That's gonna change the simplest equations around the amount of PPE needed on hand for certain items, PAR levels, ability to restock, ability to carry out a 30-day supply, et cetera. So I think we really need to, to realize these are complex systems and, and you know, there's rippling effects as we change them. We just need to monitor for those changes, react to those changes, and where we can forecast for those changes in our planning efforts. You know, Vic, with that complexity in mind, uh, I'm wondering, are there risks if we don't allow visitors back in to a particular organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, there are certain risks that can emerge with that. Um, and I'd say these are really emotional risks and, and expectational risks that can create an environment where um, emotions run high. And most certainly, if there's a misstep in any way, um, you know, in care or service, or even just having to disclose a very difficult situation, such as the fact that a loved one has contracted COVID-19, that emotional environment can most definitely create a more litigious um, environment. Uh, it can create adverse um, conditions and relationships, or in the worst case, you know, in, in many worst cases, it can undermine the trust that's so important um, between staff, residents, and families in, in delivering care and services to our older adult. So, you know, all of this thinking about the, the risks that may be introduced in, in basically whatever we do, it makes me think about waivers. We've heard of some organizations that are thinking about asking visitors to sign, you know, waivers or attestations that they've not been exposed to COVID uh, or, or similar things before they come on campus. Do you have any thoughts about that issue of those waivers? Paul, the question of waivers is an important consideration, and it is an emerging area of risk and responsibility that we're seeing through the pandemic and through our outbreak response. It doesn't surprise me to see service providers, whether that be hair salons or healthcare practitioners, looking at ways to try to mitigate risk around um, rights and responsibilities of all people involved in, in care delivery. When you think about it, you know, a waiver really, it, it ties itself back to things like informed consent and informed refusal. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest potential benefits that a waiver program, a liability waiver, uh, can provide for protection for all parties. Um, the organization as well as the person who's being asked to sign the waiver. It documents a conversation. And when ECRI talks about liability waivers in healthcare, we really emphasize you know, that piece because it's never, it never provides blanket protection. Just having a signed piece of paper does not alleviate a provider organization from its obligations and responsibilities as a reasonable healthcare provider nor does it you know, alleviate or place an undue burden on the person who's being asked to sign the waiver. What it actually does is it describes the rights and responsibilities of the relationship, what's expected. And once that happens, you can actually reach a, a position of informed decision-making. 
So when we think about waivers and liability waivers in this situation, ECRI would recommend those things. Oftentimes when a wa waiver is written in plain language, it explains those rights and responsibilities of all parties. It explains rules and expectations. And in this case, probably an attestation for the person signing the waiver, which might say, at this time and to the best of my knowledge, I am not um, experiencing any signs and symptoms of COVID-19. It can create an environment really where people feel more safe, allowing visitation to happen, and therefore contributing to the psychosocial welfare and well-being of the residents, staff, and family members. So while again, it's not a, an automatic um, fix, to take care of all the risky situations surrounding visitors and COVID-19 in this pandemic. When done correctly and for the right reasons and with the right motivation, it is a process that can document a very important conversation um, and actually ties its, its the same concepts back to the very things we use um, to help residents, patients, and other folks make good decisions about their, their healthcare, informed decisions about their healthcare. Well, and, and that, you know, that leads really nicely into my next question, Vic, which is about communication. And, you know, so we're, we're recording this in the middle of July, and different parts of the country are experiencing radically different situations from, you know, some parts of the country are having, uh, you know, fairly explosive growth in, in uh, the outbreak, and other parts of the country are relatively stable or, or even declining. And what that means is that the decisions about whether to loosen or tighten visitor restrictions are going to be really, really local based on somebody's you know, very immediate uh, circumstances. And also what that means, I think, is that sometimes nursing homes, for instance, are going to loosen restrictions maybe more slowly than the rest of their local community. Um, and maybe sometimes they might tighten restrictions more quickly than their local community. So what are some good examples of communicating with families, with the community about that, to try to explain why the situation, you know, in my nursing home or in my loved one's nursing home may be different than what we're seeing from the municipality or from other local businesses uh, that, that I may also be a, a part of? There are important considerations with those questions, Paul. And like any situation, you know, a municipality, a restaurant, a healthcare provider, you know, we start to think in, in terms of obligations of these organizations and entities and what a reasonable restaurant should do to keep people safe and what a reasonable healthcare provider should do to keep people safe and fulfill their duty of care with the people they serve. In this situation, anytime we communicate our plans, and what could happen based on certain factors as we move forward, especially where there's such an unknown, um, we're actually creating an environment that I mentioned earlier, it's that culture of safety, where all vested stakeholders are more aligned around the common good of that organization and the, those expectations. So communication ongoing becomes a, a very critical part of the day-to-day -day operations for that provider organization. That becomes even more true when things change in the equation. Um, you know, ECRI has, has really uh, promoted reopening planning that includes the reality 
that as things change in the environment where that care is provided, an organization may actually need to go back to very strict control measures to keep people safe. So as we progress through different phases of reopening, there are certain thresholds or occurrences, triggers, if you will, that if they happen, we need to revert back to these very strict measures. Making people aware of that fact is really important because should that, should that happen, I think all stakeholders, residents, family members, and staff need to realize that it's not just a linear path to, to normalization, that really this is a, a cycle, an iterative path um, that most likely will continue in those cycles for some time until we have a, a better understanding of COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and you know, evidence-based treatment, evidence-based practice, evidence-based testing, um, and perhaps even someday a vaccine that, that can help um, protect society and, and the global society even from this particular infectious outbreak. I think the other consideration with that, Paul, um, you know, not only does it need to have, have good triggers um, that monitor those environments, but it's, it's asking the question, what are those triggers? And so sometimes we think in terms of lead indicators um, and kind of reactive indicators. We would really encourage provider organizations to monitor their surrounding and environment infection rates, whether that's county, regional, um, or even at the state level, because that's a lead indicator that might um, communicate to an organization that the infection is either moving back into an area or affecting a part of the country um, that has not been affected yet. And, and truly, we're seeing that right now. You know, in, in the first months of, of this particular pandemic, um, we saw some very high infection rates and, and very high numbers of, of, you know, daily positive cases here on the East Coast um, and on the West Coast, where, you know, a lot of the pandemic started. Um, while the middle of our country, you know, didn't always experience those same levels. Uh, today, you know, here in July, as you mentioned, we're actually seeing, you know, some centrally located states um, really enter into much higher infection rates and, and higher number of positive cases per day. Um, so this entire process is going to be fluid. It's not going to be consistent uh, nationwide or even worldwide. And we'll just have to continually monitor those environments and, and adapt to them um, as we learn to understand this particular outbreak and, and the COVID-19 virus. So I, I think I would probably end with that. When we talk about these triggers, realize you know when, when you're monitoring po infection rates and popula populations, such as a resident population or staff population, once you start to see positive uh, tests again, that means the infection's there. Conversely, if you're monitoring it in your greater surrounding area before it gets back into your care delivery system, you can actually put some of those measure, those more strict measures back into place and hopefully prevent um, that particular virus or, or infectious outbreak from getting back into the building and settling into those populations, especially the staff population and the resident population. So Vic, you've, you've listed um, a handful of key questions that nursing homes are going to need to consider as they evaluate the decision to reopen. And I'm looking at the list, counting them here, it's seven or eight sort of key things that we need to be taking into this equation as we make this decision. 
so as we wrap up today, can you pick maybe one or two of them to focus on? And then we'll just sort of summarize the rest. But I wonder if there are a couple key ones that we can really focus in on. Sure thing. Um, you know, when I look at this list of factors in decision making to um, either progress into reopening phases or, or begin loosening controls to reopen, you know, of course, the federal, state, local laws and, and guidelines are very important to pay attention to. And that can, just that one component of decision making can be complex enough because we have federal guidelines that exist in almost every situation, state guidelines um, that exist regarding the pandemic and, and our outbreak response, especially in aging services. And in some cases, even local or city guidelines, laws, and regulations we need to pay attention to. Pennsylvania is a great example. Um, you know, ECRI's been working very closely with the Pennsylvania Department of Health, but the Philadelphia, direct Philadelphia region is actually carved out of that because it has its own um, health department. And so monitoring those requirements, those expectations that range from care, control measures to put into place, who to notify and when, um, when the positive cases or infection rates um, begin, show up, increase, decrease. And those are all very important considerations. And I think it's, you know, even take the state of Pennsylvania. You know, there's very different regions in Pennsylvania, different population areas, and, and this infectious outbreak, even within a state or a local region, will behave differently depending on, on so many factors. So I think, you know, realizing each decision to reopen and to move through different phases of reopening towards some kind of a normalized operation again is truly a specific case-by-case -case set of decision-making um, process, processes that, that each provider needs to consider for itself with the real risks, the real benefits, the real expectations, and the real obligations that go along with that particular care delivery system, where it's located and how it interacts with its community health system. The other thing that I just truly believe um, would be a sin of omission not to talk about is PPE availability. Um, I think, you know, one of the real dangers as we go through this, um, learning about PAR levels, what's the appropriate PPE for different parts of the operation, different staff, different residents, different visitors, what truly provides evidence-based protection and what may not. Um, the availability of that PPE, what the PAR levels are um, to meet the needs as we go through different stages of reopening and, and outbreak response. Um, I just can't emphasize the importance of that enough. Because at the end of the day, when we think of all the other decision-making factors, um, but something like this, the PPE availability is not there on its own, that's enough to, to have a provider organization step back and say, until we can ensure, give that level of assurance that we have the PPE we need to keep people safe and deliver care, we really can't move forward. So I, I think that's just another, you know, when we're talking about infection um, prevention, outbreak response, um, infectious disease, that PPE component is just so care and mission critical. And I'll, I'll rattle off quickly, Vic, some of the other items on this list. Um, and, you know, if there's any that you want to say just, just a, a little bit about, we can certainly do that. But I just want to make sure that our listeners hear, hear this full list. So we talked about, you know, federal, state, local laws, regs, and guidance. We talked about staff PPE availability. 
also on your list are, are, are staff availability and scheduling capacities. You talked earlier about uh, you know, the need to make sure that we have just sufficient staffing levels to serve the people who we're caring for. Um, universal source control, virus testing capacity, uh, really key for monitoring, right? If we don't know what's going on, we can't, we can't control it. Um, you talked about re regional and organizational infection rates uh, that goes along with the testing. And then importantly, the last item on this list, local hospital capacity. If, we, if our local hospital system is maxed out, and we keep hearing about you know, the regions where every ICU bed is full, and that includes the beds that have been converted to ICU beds. Uh, we certainly don't want to be in a position where we're taking unnecessary risks and making that situation even worse and creating even more demand for ICU beds. So all of these things are are things that we want to keep in mind as part of this decision-making equation. And, you know, that local hospital capacity, Paul, that can be a great lead indicator, too, as to what's happening with the infection um, in your surrounding community and your surrounding health system, um, community health system, because... You know, if you start to see that that local um, ICU COVID-19 capacity maxed out, then one can assume that the infection rate is reestablishing itself in, in your area. Um, so that in and of itself could trigger that, that decision to revert back to more strict control measures, um, keep the infection out of the building you know, as much as possible, and to really preserve the health of that resident population and that staff population. Even you know, as states lay out their guidelines to move through various phases and to reopen, you know, as provider organizations, um, I've had conversations with with CEOs nationwide, and and just like in every other population, um, not just our older adult population, we see a, a mixed set of feelings. You know, some people who truly believe I want to assume the risk, let me see my families and, and my family and friends. And, and that's a risk here at this time in my life I'm, I'm willing to um, accept. To the other end of the spectrum where we have residents who, you know, really understand the potential threat to their health and well-being and really see that a provider organization's responsibility is to keep them safe in this, in this situation. And um, part of that is to limit visitation or restrict it, you know, altogether. And, and I think, you know, ultimately, it's, it's understanding your resident population, understanding these factors that you just listed, even at the point a region or a state says, yes, you can start to relax measures. You know, every provider organization has the right and even the moral obligation to review their situation. And they can certainly say, hey, this just isn't the right time for us yet. Even though others might be doing that, our infection rate in our local community, our local hospital capacity, our PPE availability, our own internal staffing and scheduling, um, any of those issues are uh, you know, in and of themselves enough for a provider organization to say, we're not going to do this yet irrespective of what people are doing around us, that we really believe our duty of care requires us to be, you know, take a different approach and make a different decision at this time. And, and that's why, you know, these, these are very complex decisions. They have a lot of things that come in, you know, factor into them. And, and um, we would just really encourage each provider organization to know that you make this decision yourself based on what you see your needs to be, 
um, what your residents and staff and, and even visitors, um, you know, families need and, and to, to take that approach here. Vic, thanks so much for talking with us today. Learn more about how ECRI can help from our website at www.ecri.org, where you'll find our COVID-19 Resource Center with publicly available resources to help providers across the continuum of care, in particular, aging services providers. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.